is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Women are far more likely to end up with Alzheimer's disease than men. They also experience migraines, strokes, and other mental health issues more often. Neurologist and neuroscientist Lisa Moscone says there's a huge gender gap in brain health research. Women's brain health is overlooked, underdiagnosed, and under-researched. Moscone says this is due to a mindset she calls bikini medicine. What makes a woman a woman from a medical perspective is a reproductive organ, those parts of the body that fit under a bikini. Right? If you think about women's health, it's about their breasts, it's about their ovaries, it's about their hormones. We don't talk about their brain. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute. Today's conversation is from Aspen Ideas Health. Lisa Moscone directs the Women's Brain Initiative at Will Cornell Medical College. Her latest book is The XX Brain. She discusses the female brain's unique risks and strengths and ways to maximize cognitive health with Natalie Morales of NBC's Today Show. Here's Natalie Morales. We're talking about women, and the fact of the matter is that we are two-thirds more likely to end up developing Alzheimer's in our lifetime. Are women's brains that different than men's? I mean, I know men are from Mars and women are from Venus. (laughs) But is it really that we are wired so differently? We are. We are wired differently. And I also got a lot of the Mars and Venus, Barbie and Lego questions. But I I am a neuroscientist. I'm, I'm a brain scientist. My background is in neurology, neuroscience, nuclear medicine. So the way I approach this problem is quite... Uh, objective. I, I look at brains in many different ways, using many different parameters, and what stands out most clearly is that women's brains age differently than men's brains. And something that we have learned just recently, and that's really a big part of my research, is that the way that our hormones change is really key to brain aging in women, which is a connection that's been largely unexplored pretty much forever. So it's a very new topic, it's a very Mm -hmm. interesting topic, and I think it's worth talking about it because all women go through menopause. Yeah. And that really is quite a thing, I'm told. And especially for our brains. And it like, is a thing. I'm getting there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, at some point, we all will. Yes, we yes. Do, and we need to understand what happens to our brains during the transition to menopause and why that's being associated with higher risk of Alzheimer's disease for some women and also with anxiety, with depression, with memory lapses, with an increased risk of a number of medical conditions that I'm sure we'll talk about. Well, yeah, we're going to dive deep into all of those topics because I think that's what we're all so fascinated about is, you know, and how can I, you know, better perhaps uh, decrease my chances of developing Alzheimer's. So we'll get into that. But let me go back to what you said, that the scientific community really only now is starting to understand that women and our hormones may be somewhat linked, but yet Why has gender been removed from the problem and from the equation in the medical community? Yes, that is such a good question and something that I have personally struggled for a really long time. I've been trying to Mm. study women's brains for 20 years, in part because I have a family history of Alzheimer's disease that really affects the women in my family. 
Yeah. And I started asking, as soon as I was 19, I was able to, to start doing brain scans and work with the nuclear medicine department as a volunteer, of course, um, because my parents are nuclear physicists. So it kind of runs in my family. Wow. Yes, it's really interesting. But the point is nobody had answers for me. My questions were, does it matter if you're a woman or a man in terms of your risk of Alzheimer's disease? Is it genetic? Is it lifestyle? Is it something else? And the, quest, the answers were just not there. And I think what the problem is, is that we have a huge gender gap in research, especially mm -hmm. as related to brain health. And still today, women's brain health is one of the most overlooked, underdiagnosed, and under-researched fields of medicine. Mm -hmm. And that's really because it, I would say three things that happened. The first one is that women were actively excluded from research until 1993, especially from clinical trials for a number of reasons that I don't know if you want to get into. But the point is that there was no research with women in it. And the second thing is that all this medical research that excluded women probably just substantiated this bias, it justified this bias against women's brains that I refer to as bikini medicine, which yeah. is really like saying that what makes a woman a woman from a medical perspective is a reproductive organs, those parts of the body that fit under a bikini, right? If you think about women's health, it's about her breasts, it's about her ovaries, it's about her hormones. We don't talk about her brain especially when we talk about women's health, we never talk about women's brains. And so all of this contributed to women just being excluded from research and being misdiagnosed, underdiagnosed, not even looked at. You know, it's fascinating. Um, you talked about your connection to Alzheimer's and my mother-in-law was diagnosed in her mid-50s with early onset Alzheimer's. So it has been a, a passion of mine as well to try to crack the code and try to figure out what we can be doing better in our lives or lifestyle. Let's go back to the question of hormones and specifically estrogen with women. What does estrogen have to do with Alzheimer's? It's a really great question and something that we're actively exploring right now. Um, I think what is missing from the conversation is that their brains do not work in isolation. Our brains are connected with the rest of the body. And especially for women, the interactions between the brain and the reproductive system are really key to brain aging. And that is because our hormones mediate this communication between the brain and the reproductive system. And we all know that hormones differ between the genders. Men have more testosterone, women have more estrogens. But what people don't realize is that the hormones that we have in the body are the same hormones we have in our brains. They just have a different function in the brain. We think of these hormones as being involved in reproduction and having children. But in the brain, they really serve a completely different function that is related to having energy. So estrogen for women literally pushes neurons to burn sugar, glucose, to make energy. So if estrogen is high, your brain energy is high. It's, it's like mm -hmm. estrogen has some kind of superpowers in the brain. Yeah. It really keeps your brain healthy and young. And so does testosterone for men. 
But the thing is that testosterone fades very gradually away over time, usually not until old age, whereas women lose the superpowers of estrogen in midlife during menopause. But then we live another 30 years in a postmenopausal stage without that protection that the estrogen provides. So how does that affect the brain then as you start going through menopause and you start experiencing that loss of estrogen? What we can see on brain scans is that the neurons slow down. Mm. They make less energy. And that is associated with an accelerated aging process. I think a lot of women report that after menopause, your skin gets a little bit drier. Not all women, obviously, but mm-hmm. many women do note that their skin is a little bit drier, their hair is a little bit more fragile. Something very similar happens inside the brain. It's not a huge, severe problem, but the brain is also starting to age. And we can see that on brain scans. And for some women, the changes are very, very mild. For others, they're quite extreme. Like we have published studies with hundreds of women at this point, and we do find quite a big drop in energy levels in the brain, which I want to clarify does not correlate with reduced cognitive performance. Women perform just as well as the men of the same age. Women going through Thank menopause. You. <laughs> that was my yeah. next question. <laughs> yeah. Very important to know that women's brains are compensating. And we're trying to find out how we're compensating because we do, our brains kind of lose energy, they lose the estrogens, but they're, doing, they're performing really well. So we want to understand what happens so that we can promote and support that compensatory mechanism. And you write a whole, I mean, there's a couple of chapters in the book, but there's a whole section particularly that focuses on hormone replacement therapy and who should think about it, who shouldn't. I'll, I'll recommend people read that because there's a lot of different areas where you go through and say you should or shouldn't. If you've been, obviously, if you've had cancer or breast cancer survivor, it's, you have to approach it differently. But for those who are approaching menopause or already there already, what do we need to be asking ourselves when it comes to HRT? Do you really need it? And why do you want it? I think there are, there are different things that can be achieved safely with HRT. And I think what's really important to know is your risks and your strengths in a mm-hmm. way. And this is something to discuss with your doctors. There are some women who are just not eligible for HRT. For other women, the best formulation, the best dosage really depends on what you're trying to achieve, what kind of symptoms you want to minimize or alleviate. And something I'm really interested in is, um, well, number one, I would really like to test hormonal therapy for Alzheimer's prevention. Mm-hmm. has been done in some ways, but not in the best possible way. I think we need to start younger before menopause and that hasn't been done yet so i think it's a very important unexplored area of research it really needs to be you know there are many questions that need to be answered but i'm also really interesting interested in things that we can do instead of hormonal therapy because there are many natural behavioral strategies that can be used that pretty much have the same results for many women and do not involve a prescription 
we're going to get into that lifestyle prevention exercise sleep how all of that plays a part um let me ask you first though what about genetics what is the genetic connection and link i mean as i mentioned my mother-in-law with early onset alzheimer's my husband and i are very much about health and wellness now because we know perhaps there is a risk for him well i would recommend testing for you and I, I have a whole chapter in the book about how to approach testing, which really starts with a very detailed family history questionnaire. Because, mm-hmm. yes, early onset Alzheimer's, but um, did it happen to other family members? Like, are there multiple family members affected? Because if so, it speaks to genetics. If mm-hmm. it's an isolated case, it doesn't. So there are a number of things that clinically we would like to, to find out and would better guide the assessment. Um, basically, Alzheimer's disease comes in two major forms. There's an early onset genetically determined familial form that is caused by genetic mutations. And that is an aggressive form of Alzheimer's disease. So I'm hoping your husband does not carry any genetic mutations, but he is most likely eligible for testing, or actually his mother is first. Mm-hmm. 98 to 99% of all Alzheimer's cases do not carry these genetic mutations. And for the majority of Alzheimer's cases, it's really the interplay of genetic risk factors rather than mutations, but also medical history, lifestyle, and environment that really all together uh, modulate risk of Alzheimer's disease and hormonal health. Especially. Let me ask you about that because um, there are some medical risk factors that could also affect your risks of developing Alzheimer's heart disease, thyroid disease, metabolic disorders, TBI, traumatic brain injury. as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, there are many different medical conditions that do not necessarily directly affect the brain or cause Alzheimer's, but they could um, trigger an initial predisposition. They could promote um, Alzheimer's disease. And these include the ones that you just mentioned, and especially for women, uh, metabolic disorders seem to be really, really important because they do have a hormonal component. So mm-hmm. the factors really interact. And what I think is really, really important is that there are many different risk factors for Alzheimer's disease that we know of. And I believe in the book, I listed over 30. And we're just learning how these risk factors affect the genders differently. And it really looks like men and women almost have two separate pathways towards Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. The men are more cardiovascular in nature, whereas for women, they're more hormonal, metabolic, and inflammatory. So there are some things, there are some risk factors that affect and increase risk of Alzheimer's more in women than in men and the other way around. And I think something quite funny in a way is that many risk factors affect women more than men or only women and not men in terms of risk of Alzheimer's disease. But the number one risk factor for Alzheimer's disease in men is not being married to a woman. What? Yes. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> I 
everybody. There are so many studies that looked into possibilities yeah. and different permutations. And the number one factor for men is not being married to a woman in that case. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily being married to a woman as much as being in a supportive, healthy, nurturing relationship because the studies were done on data that was collected many, many years ago where same-sex marriage was just not allowed in these countries. Mm -hmm. So it restricted to men who were married to women, to traditional marriages. But the point is that men, uh, women are really good at taking care of people. Yes. Traditionally, traditionally <laughs> the wives were in charge of the health of the entire family, right? Mm -hmm. It used to be the wife who was scheduled the medical appointments, making sure the husband was taking the pills and making sure the family was eating healthily. So that was, I thought that was really cute when I read it. Which is a perfect segue to lifestyle and prevention and some tips. And we have some viewer questions. Uh, somebody asking, what is the single most important thing a woman can do for her most post-menopausal brain? Ooh, the single most important thing, I believe, is to really look at your lifestyle and find the one part of your lifestyle that is not where it should be or where you would like it to be. Because mm -hmm. everybody has different risks and everybody has different baselines. Like for me, there would be stress stress reduction because I'm not good at that. I'm not good at reducing either. It's <laughs> <Sure. laughs> very hard. But for a lot of women, it's maybe diet. Right? They're physically active, they're intellectually stimulated, they're just not eating healthily. So um, I think there are eight key steps to a very healthy female brain before and after menopause, really. And they include mental stimulation, intellectual activity, especially mm -hmm. when learning is, is involved. Learning is to your brain what exercise is to your muscles. Mm. Because it really stimulates synaptic growth. It stimulates connections between different brain regions and different neurons. And that's what really keeps the brain plastic, which in biology means young. Right. But learning, you know, you need to challenge yourself. Like if you like to read a book, don't, don't read a novel, read something that is really challenging. If you like to watch movies, watch a documentary as well, where you learn something. So you really need to feel engaged in what you're doing. My mom plays Mahjong almost four times a week. So that's always keeping her brain young. And that's wonderful. Playing she games. most of her games. I would put that <laughs> <laughs> but besides that, I mean, I know that diet has to be in that eight steps, right? Diet, how important is moderating what you eat, but also what kinds of foods should we be eating? As you wrote, also wrote the book, The Brain Book, The right. Brain Food. That's right. Um, diet is really important for two reasons. Number one, the nutrients that we eat have an effect not just on our bodies, but also literally inside our brains. Our brains are made of nutrients for a really big part. And so we really need to replenish those nutrients pretty much on a daily basis to make sure our brain has access. And especially for women, um, I recommend antioxidants. Mm -hmm. We have found using brain scans that there's a very strong correlation between your intake of antioxidants from the diet, which is vitamin A, C, and E, and your brain energy levels throughout the lifespan, but also after menopause. It really looks like the more of these nutrients you consume on a daily basis, the higher your brain energy over time. 
in throughout aging. And the second reason is then we eat three, uh, three times a day. Most people do three times a day, sometimes even more than that. So we literally have three chances every day to make a choice that is supportive of brain health. It's not just about the way we look, it's really about feeding our brains with the right nutrients so that our brains can perform so much better for us. So I'm, I'm a strong proponent of a healthy diet. I'm quite specific with my own diet. I really eat for my brain as much as I can. And my research has really influenced the way we eat as a family. Even my parents, I'm Italian. Yeah. So, I, so I, that's I, perfect. The Mediterranean diet, which is what you write about in the book, being sort of the, the diet that most people should follow, right? I think it's a really good template because mm -hmm. it's a very fresh diet, very rich in the nutrients that the brain wants and needs all the time. It, it's not a deprivation diet, which I think is also really important for mood. <laughs> I mean, I can't be deprived. I, I would really prevent it. <laughs> I want to enjoy my food. So I think it's a very sensible diet. And what I like about it is that it didn't come up with somebody thinking about it and writing mm -hmm. a book about it. It's really the result of thousands of years of women consuming that diet and doing significantly better than women who live on a Western diet. I think that the contrast is quite clear, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be Mediterranean. I think it's more the concept, right? It's more like the framework. So plant-based or plant-centric with a good amount of vegetable oils, especially unrefined ones. And uh, a lot of fiber. Fiber is really good for you and it also really helps regulate hormones. Just mm. something we don't talk that much about and we should. Fish, legumes. So there's this huge study that was done in England with hundreds of thousands of women showing that the more fish and legumes you eat, the later on in life you go through menopause. Interesting. I think it's really interesting. It speaks to yeah. the, really the fiber and the omega-3 fatty acids also complex carbohydrates and they also show that the more processed foods you have in your diet the more refined sugar you have in your diet the earlier in life you go through menopause even if you have no genetic reason to do it mm -hmm. so i think that really speaks to diet as an important not just something we do for fun or for pleasure but something like food is function and, and it's something that we can actively do we have control over it um, exercise also is an important factor. And I like, you write in the book that slow and steady wins the race. <laughs> the moderate exercise is the route to go rather than a lot of people are now taking all these, you know, well, when we were going to gyms, we could take high intensity classes. Um, now we're doing the videos at home. <laughs> but why is slow and steady a better pace for exercise? And how much exercise should we be getting? I think slow and steady really translates to moderate intensity. And um, there are studies that really looked into that in women, very specifically only women and not men and women together. And they showed a very clear inverted U-shape between intensity and gains. So if you have zero intensity or very low intensity, you have no gains. But as the intensity starts going up, so, so are the gains until you reach the tip. And that's for moderate intensity exercise. As you go towards higher intensity, your gains start decreasing. And that's mm. for women who are ages 40 and older. 
So it looks like as long as their hormones and their physiology is really supportive in general, you can do whatever you like. You know, any, any exercise is really super helpful. For many women, and these are all average studies, right? You have a huge group of people. You look for what works for the average person. For women who are older than 40, and especially post-menopause, it looks like a moderate intensity exercise, I believe, is just more sustainable. I think what happens is that it gives you enough gains, but you also do it often enough that you can see a benefit. Whereas I think for, for many people, you go very high intensity and then you're tired, you just don't do it consistently enough. If you do, great. Yeah. But what I think it's really important is that if you can't, if you don't like it, that's okay. There's no yeah. reason to feel bad about it just because it's trendy. Right? And, and what about, oh, sorry, but I was going to ask you about sleep because yeah. we have a viewer who says, how does poor sleep quality impact women and their brains as they age? Oh, it does. And I, that's my issue, right? Stress reduction and lack of sleep. <laughs> so this is from the Science Foundation, National Science Foundation. They really show that women sleep worse than men, pretty much at any age. We have trouble falling asleep. We have trouble staying asleep. And the quality of the sleep and the structure of the sleep is much more easily disrupted as well. And that seems to really overlap with mid midlife middle age mm -hmm. for many women i don't want to sound like everything is hormonal but there is a hormonal um impact on sleep as well because the hormones are changes and what happens is that um there's a very specific part of the brain it's called the brain stem it's down here and it's in charge of sleep and wake and if your estrogens activate that region correctly you also sleep when the estrogens start to go up and down during perimenopause and actually starting at age 35, especially progesterone, then this brain region is not activated correctly. And that's why we have a tendency to wake up in the middle of the night. And stress does the same because melatonin, melatonin is really high throughout the first half of the night until two in the morning. And then it decreases and cortisol and adrenaline go up. And if you have a lot of stress, they go up too much and then you wake up at three in the morning, which is what happens to a lot of women. So it's really important to prioritize sleep. And I know that a lot of us have a really hard time doing that. Do you sleep well? I don't. No, I've, I've been struggling with sleeping well. I mean, obviously during the pandemic, it's been worse. I think all of us are feeling stress and anxiety more, but I am perimenopausal and I do feel like I get hot in the middle of the night or I have to get up and then to go back to sleep is very hard. So I've been taking, which is, I read in the, your book as well, valerian and um, black cohosh, which I wanted to ask you for supplements that women, um, what are some of the ones that you recommend? And obviously these are things that you should talk with your doctor about and just make sure that you it's something that you can, you know, it reacts well with your body. Yes, I am I'm a strong believer in testing before mm -hmm. deciding which supplements to take. There are some supplements, I, I think a lot of people just go for the multivitamin, which makes a lot of sense in principle, but um, it doesn't really help unless you're deficient in some of the nutrients that are usually included in those tablets. So what we do, um, we do a lot of blood testing so we can measure all the antioxidants, all the essential fatty acids, all the B vitamins. And then if there are any deficiencies, we, we supplement 
Mm-hmm. But first of all, we go through a very thorough diet examination because the best way to supplement is really by changing your diet. Right. That said, in some cases, a healthy diet is not enough. And in that case, I think supplementing is, is helpful. And the supplements that we tend to recommend the most, especially for women, are omega-3 fatty acids, especially for those who do not eat fish mm-hmm. often, because if you eat fish enough, then you shouldn't need them. Uh, something I'm very fond of is flaxseed oil. Yes. For women who don't eat fish very often or on days that you don't eat fish, Flaxseed oil has the highest concentration of omega-3 fatty acids of any oil relative to mm-hmm. omega-6. And just one tablespoon is about half of all the omega-3s you need for today. Oh, wow. So I'm an olive oil kind of person, but I switched. So now I'm using that for lunch. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, and what about you know vitamin E, vitamin C? Yes, the antioxidants I find to be really, really important. And I would encourage postmenopausal women especially to consider taking them. Uh, vitamin C really helps with sleep. A mm. lot of women, especially the combination of a progesterone cream with vitamin C really alleviates the night sweats in clinical trials. Mm-hmm. So this is something that's been shown to work for many women and it's worth trying because there are no real, there are no side effects. You know, worst case, it doesn't work. So an over-the-counter progesterone cream. Yes. Um, I would, or it's always best to ask a doctor for the best right. possible formulation, but uh, that might help. And vitamin E is a very strong antioxidant as well that also stimulates blood flow and oxygen levels to the brain. And that is really important because it keeps your energy high. So that's another good vitamin to keep in mind. And then beta-carotene, which is the precursor to vitamin A. And honestly, um, antioxidants are really best obtained from the nutrient, from the foods that we eat. So if possible to consume more um, orange, yellow vegetables and fruits and healthy nuts and seeds and very dark, green, leafy vegetables, that's probably the best way to supplement. Then of course, there's only so much salad one, one can take. I mean, there is so much information in this book that I encourage everybody to read it. Again, it's the XX brain. Um, one more question, uh, because you talked about testing. Um, a viewer asked, can you talk about what tests or scans you use to study Alzheimer's and to track the progress of the disease? And is the testing accurate? And before we went live, you were saying, you yourself are going to have a brain scan, which you haven't done before. Um, so you can talk about that. Yes, I'm a, I'm a big fan of brain scans. I, I strongly believe it's the best tool that we have right now to really assess brain health on an individual basis. And it's a very strong diagnostic tool for Alzheimer's disease. And it's also a really good predictive tool. And we're exploring that more now. What we do is a lot of brain scans. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, we work with each participant, with every patient to really make sure that we address their concerns and we make them comfortable. So you, you don't have to do a thousand scans if you don't want to, but most of our participants do want to. And we look at 
we do MRI scans, magnetic resonance imaging scans, and then we do what I, what I love, which is PET scans, PET, positron emission tomography scans. My background is in nuclear medicine, so that's what I've been doing for 20 years at this point. And we look at everything we can. We look at the structure of the brain, we look at the anatomy of the brain, we try to see if there's any shrinkage of the brain because that is a big red flag mm. for Alzheimer's risk. We look for inflammation in the brain. We look for white matter integrity, which is really um, how well different parts of your brain communicate with each other. We look at energy levels in the brain, really important during menopause. We look, of course, at Alzheimer's plaques. We can look at tau pathology, which is another marker of Alzheimer's disease. We look at vascular damage, which is also really, really important, especially for women in the brain. It's a bit worse for women after menopause. We also treat a number of things like brain tumors, aneurysms, and we're a neurology department. So we, we look at a lot of things. And I, what I always tell our patients who start working with us, um, the youngest at this point is 40, but we just lowered the age range to 35. And we tell them, come as soon as you can, because it's really helpful to have a good, strong baseline. It's helpful to you for life, because right now you have no problems. And this is your brain now when you have no problems. God forbid, in 10 years, you do have some issues or some concerns, especially during menopause. That happens a lot. Right. And we do another brain scan and we can compare. Because if you come to me when you're having trouble, there's only so much, unless there's a very clear problem that I can see immediately. I don't know what your brain was before. Right. So it's the so same like a baseline. You have a baseline to compare it to. Yes. It's always better to be able to check for change or no change. Because if there is no change, you're just having a hard I mean, just you're having a hard time and we, we need to address the symptoms in different right. ways. If there is a change, then we need to really address your brain. So it really helps a lot to have as many time points, we say as possible. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure to be here today. Lisa Moscone is a professor of neuroscience, neurology, and radiology at Will Cornell Medical College and the founder and director of the Women's Brain Initiative. She focuses on the early detection of Alzheimer's disease in at-risk individuals, especially women, as well as the prevention of memory loss through medical care, diet, physical, and intellectual fitness. Her latest book is The XX Brain. Natalie Morales is the West Coast anchor of NBC's Today Show, host of Dateline, and anchor of Behind Closed Doors with Natalie Morales on Reels Channel. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Shauna Lewis. It was programmed by Aspen Ideas Health. Our theme music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.